0: a woohooer! A hand clapper, a high fiver. I kinda like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, prohibited by loss. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret. Violent green is people. Need <laughs> my sister and my daughter.
1: Roseburg. What's in the box? And like that, he's gone. Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and this week we'll be spoiling Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, Phantom Thread. Here to talk with me about phantom thread is the writer and freelancer and my friend rachel syme
0: hi rachel sounds great hi
1: um so yeah we saw phantom thread together a few weeks ago we did
0: it was a movie date
1: and uh and we had such a good conversation about it at dinner afterwards that i thought that you were the only person i wanted to spoil the movie with so thank you for coming in thank you for having me so where do we begin with Phantom Thread? First of all, what I usually do is just get a, a thumbnail response of joy, pain, anger, misery, whatever. Do you recommend this movie? And then we'll get into the details.
0: Well, my thumbnail response is of like pure joy. I love this movie. I highly recommend it.
1: Yeah, I'm I with was you. I
0: was waiting for it all year and then it finally came and it's so rare that something like matches those kinds of expectations and then it superseded them for me especially this movie because it was wrapped in all of this kind of mystery and hype right right? just like three stills i meditated on of daniel day lewis somewhere in the english countryside like getting gas I like (laughs) have that like image saved on my computer somewhere and I was just like someday this movie will come and there was no title released I think until midway it was just called untitled Untitled Paul Thomas Anderson London fashion project or something
1: and then there was the announcement somewhere at some point during the year that it was going to be Daniel Day-Lewis's last film which adds this other kind of luster of sadness to the whole project
0: yeah and that they were sort of all cooped up together in this London house filming it like the entire crew was on floors on top of each other or something it was like claustrophobic There's so much mystery around what they were doing in that house do you know anything about the location scouting
1: of that house and if it's supposed to be a particular designer's house
0: no i don't know and and honestly um you know there's the the reynolds woodcock who's the main character in this movie played by daniel Daniel day lewis Lewis. who is a fashion designer in the 1950s in london who runs a uh, couturier a couture house called the house of woodcock um with his sister cyril woodcock um, it's not really based on one particular designer per se. He's a composite character of of several people that Paul Thomas Anderson was interested in and reading about, um, namely Charles James, Jacques Fath, uh, Balenciaga, Christian Dior. I mean, it's kind of a, there was some from Rome and some from Paris, some from America, some from London. Um, but I think it, it, you know, setting it in London made him a singular character. That only Daniel D. lewis could play.
1: Right. And I mean, a sense that I get also from reading Mm -hmm. interviews with Paul Thomas Anderson, Daniel D. lewis hasn't done, understandably, given his kind of general cloaked-in mystery air, very much uh, publicity. He hasn't done many interviews about this. But Paul Thomas Anderson talked about how they came up with the name for the character together. And it made me realize how collaborative at least that part of the screenplay must have been. Like, did you know that DDL named the character himself?
0: No, um no. I know he dressed the character himself like I I was um, telling you earlier that the costume designer who I got to speak to told me that um, one of the things they did to help Daniel get into character, or embrace the character as he always does. You know, he's so method in his way um, was just give him a wardrobe. Of what Reynolds may have worn, which were these exquisite um, men's clothes, just tweeds and ascots and beautiful vests and suiting and a great coat and these kinds of things. And he got to just dress himself every morning from a closet as opposed to, you know, that was stocked for him and, and as as according to the way he felt Reynolds would feel that day. Right.
1: And and really, I mean, so much of this movie revolves around... Well, we'll get to the central relationship yeah. that it revolves around. But I mean, without the eccentricity and the kind of... Um, the idiosyncrasy of this character, mm-hmm. the whole thing wouldn't hang together. I mean, it's, it's it was really impossible to imagine any other actor in that role. And it is one of the sadnesses of seeing this movie that if, if he keeps his word, this is the last time we'll see him on screen.
0: Yeah, because he so fully embodies this character. I truly believe that Reynolds, by the end, I, I kept thinking, God, I want to just go to a museum and see all of the f- clothes from the House of Woodcock that were once made before realizing it's true, never You made. want there to be this whole alternate fan
1: universe where right. the clothes exist. All right, so let's get into who Reynolds Woodcock is at the beginning of the movie and yes. uh, how we meet him. Want to start? Um, yeah, okay, so significantly, I think, because this becomes a place of much conflict during the movie, it, this movie begins, um, well, actually, the, there's a frame story. There's an important frame story in which we first see Alma Elson, Mm -hmm. a second lead, I would say, opposite Daniel Day-Lewis. The wonderful Vicky Creeps. Played by Vicky Creeps, a Luxembourgian actress. I can't think of any other figure in cinema. There are three people in Luxembourg. One is Vicky (laughs) (laughs) Creeps. So the first face you see and the first voice you hear is hers as she sits by fireside um, with this sort of rapturous glowing expression on Mm -hmm. her face, talking about her love for Reynolds Woodcock Mm -hmm. to a person we don't know at that time I don't think you even see the face of the person she's talking to yes
0: it's a very like last night I dreamt of Manderly opening she sort of leads you into the story in a somewhat Rebecca-ish way like last night I dreamt of Manderly here she starts she's telling some mystery person about her life with Reynolds and you know she's going to be the person who drives you through the narrative she's been here for the whole story but we don't really know why And in fact, that Rebecca structure is something that
1: Paul Thomas Anderson has said is one of his influences. I mean, he's a big cinephile. There's a lot of different influence pouring into this. But there's a lot of Hitchcock in this movie in general. uh, Definitely. But I mean, Rebecca in particular, just in that it's the story of a young woman who comes to this previously established and somewhat oppressive house, house. Yes, right? trapped
0: in this house, especially with a woman who, you know, there's a Mrs. Danforth
1: character in this movie, too. Which is Leslie Manville's mm-hmm. Cyril Woodcock, the sister and business manager and really sort of, in a way, life partner of her brother.
0: Yeah, I mean, what we learn at the beginning of the movie, by the way, the next thing we see after Alma by the fireside is a little bit more detail about the relationship between Reynolds and his sister. Um, he's extremely close to his sister, played by Leslie Manville, as you said. Um, he calls her my old so-and-so he orders for her at restaurants they're almost two parts of the same mind you know they're a sort of there's like a biodynamism to their relationship
1: and they live they seem to live in the same house together where the uh Where they make their dresses, right? It all happens in this one narrow London townhouse where most of the movie takes place. Yes, there's almost like a creepy married couple, brother sister thing happening in that old house. Right. But so after that frame story by the fireside, we go immediately to the breakfast table, which Mm. becomes that's the site I was thinking of that becomes this almost battleground throughout the movie, right? So many important
0: things happen. There has never been so much tension over breakfast than in this movie. There's like six scenes that are extremely tense that happen over breakfast with the sounds of eating breakfast. Right. And
1: something that is established very early on, even before Vicky Creeps meets Daniel Day-Lewis, before the central couple meets and falls in love, is that Breakfast time is the time at which Reynolds Woodcock, the artist, must draw together his resources for the day. And if anything's thrown off at breakfast, the whole day is screwed.
0: Yeah. And it's this idea that these genius men, brilliant people, have a ritual, right? They have some kind of routine that if it's broken, all is lost. And for Reynolds, this begins at breakfast, which is quite... um, Restrictive for everyone else in the house. If his breakfast is disrupted, his whole day is thrown off. So that means from the very moment you wake up, you have to be on eggshells. Right. literally. Right. And
1: it seems clear from just a very quick throwaway scene at the breakfast table at the beginning that his practice in life has been to sort of cycle through young women that are his muses, maybe his fashion models and his girlfriends, and that he then... He doesn't even cast them aside. He usually has his sister Cyril do the dirty work for him.
0: Yes, and he makes these beautiful dresses for them, but it's hard to tell whether or not he has any actual feelings of Eros towards them. It's sort of mixed up in putting them in beautiful clothes and seeing them parade around in something he's made and then having them sort of inhabit the house as somewhat of a person, but somewhat of a ghost that inspires him. But then the minute that he's no longer inspired, he has Cyril tidy up and get rid of these women. So it's made clear in that quick opening scene that he
1: has cycled through this unnamed girlfriend and that he's ready to move on uh, and that she's going to be kicked out by the sister. Um, That clears the way after some beautiful fashion scenes that kind of establish how caretaking and meticulous and really monomaniacal he is in his work. Right. We see him modeling a beautiful kind of gown Mm -hmm. ensemble on one of his clients. And then pretty quickly moved to him actually meeting Vicky Creeps in the country um, or Alma. I want to call them by their character names I know, because Alma, the characters are so Alma Elson, and beautiful names um, who
0: we never really learned her provenance. I mean, maybe she's from Luxembourg. Yeah. They only identify her as foreign. Right? Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, I learned from Mark yesterday that there were a few cut scenes where you meet her family that we never got to. You know, they're an immigrant family. Um, and, uh, you know, we never got to really see that in the movie. Um, she sort of ends up as a solo character floating through this world alone. But, you know, he goes out to the country and there's there's a real uh, sort of duality in this movie between the city and the country. Reynolds has two houses. Um, one is kind of where he goes wild and also has his breakdowns out in the middle of this beautiful English moor. And then one is where he does his business in London with all these really high profile royal clients. And he goes to the country After dismissing the latest woman to dry out and become re-inspired and, you know, take in the brisk air. And that's where he meets Alma. Right, who's waiting tables at the at the hotel? And here's where breakfast comes in again, and and food comes more breakfast. In, in a, in he a really orders so way. much breakfast in this scene. Um, you know, she comes up, he sees her. She's this clumsy sort of tall, gawky woman. Um, the first thing you see her do is trip, which is drop kind of, a tray, which is yeah. great, given that she's moving into
1: this world where you of know perfection, and elegance, is everything. Yeah.
0: And he sees her drop a tray. She creates this cacophony in the restaurant, and he's immediately charmed. I think there's this sense where he thinks. This is a kind of duckling, I can turn into a swan perhaps, or just that he likes her guilelessness. But when she comes up and asks him, um, what he would like for breakfast he orders just the most insane amount of food and with such pleasure that's the thing is that the times that food comes up in
1: this movie which is maybe three or four different times it's with incredible specificity right he wants a certain kind of jam with his scones and know, you know I there keep... has to be cream or you can't have porridge of course
0: right i keep thinking of the when he first orders breakfast with almond he goes i'd like a welsh rare bit with an egg on top not too runny Mm-hmm. the way he says it and later um you know with the with the cream he's like oh it's so good to have cream in the house it's a bit naughty though mm-hmm. and right. there's this sense where for him this food is kind of where he puts all his passion right and, and
1: and food is definitely associated with desire for him as well it's it's sort of when he's he's feeling good when he's feeling um you know when he's separated enough from his work to have some sort of erotic and or sensual connection to the world that he gets hungry and asks for food and in fact there's that note she hands him at the restaurant right mm-hmm. which becomes kind of More meaningful as the movie goes on, this little note with her name saying, um, this is for the hungry
0: boy Mm -hmm, for the hungry boy, which I think is a, as much of a come on as you might be able to give a man in the 1950s. (laughs) Um, and they've already at that point arranged that they're going to have a date that evening. Um, he's asked he's asked her out moments after she's taken his order at the restaurant and he does something very strange when she takes his order she she, he, he orders all this stuff sausages and bacon and eggs and a pot of lapsang tea and she writes it all down in her notepad and then he goes will you remember it and she says yes and then he says well i want to keep your notes from what you were writing down as a souvenir so there's already this sense that he's 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 flirting with her but he's also somewhat taking ownership or trying to sort of control the situation and and sort of like put her in his pocket
1: and testing her right yeah. giving her a kind of memory exam um. Yeah. And so from the very beginning and then that that very night after they go out to dinner, he takes her back to his atelier in his, his country house and starts fitting a dress on her, using her as a model right away, getting her measurements. And it becomes clear to us, having seen that first scene of the girlfriend being fired from breakfast, that she's next in line. Right. She's next on the assembly line of inspirational women for his character.
0: Right. And, you know, she arrives. To this date, wearing a red dress, which I talked to the costume designer about, and they they very specifically chose that red dress, which was kind of a little durndelish, a little bit like Scandinavian looking, and it's it's like a Swiss coloring, it's right? With bright red, with on the color. Mm-hmm. and um, it was very bright. And uh, you know, she she clearly meant. For it to be, she has her own sense of taste. She has her own sense of, you know, is a provocative dress in so much as it is a bright red dress that she's wearing on a first date. She clearly knows what she wants, um, which is that she wants to be with Reynolds. There's a sense of sort of eroticism between them, even from the very beginning. But I think when he starts to take her measurements, it becomes, again, clear that he wants to be in control of the situation. He has her in a slip, um, sort of cold and standing up on this pedestal to be measured. And I think it becomes very clear what the dynamic is and how twisty it is when Cyril arrives at the country house in the middle of this fitting.
1: Right. And is immediately asked to take notes and, and becomes this assessor. Right. She's writing down the measurements number by number as as Daniel Day-Lewis takes them.
0: And she says, who's this beautiful creature making the house smell so nice with Alma? And she goes up and she sniffs her and she says, sandalwood and rosewater. And she's literally smelling this girl out mm-hmm. as if she's a, cre- you know, a, an animal who has a new sort of competitive creature in the cave and she's trying to assess whether or not this person's actually formidable or viable. It's very sort of primal what's going on between them in that scene. Right. And 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 yet it's all done with
1: just minimal, minimal language, which is something mm-hmm. I love about this movie. I mean, the words that are there are beautifully chosen, but it's not a wordy movie. That voiceover, for example, it's very, very sparing. I mean, you have that firelight scene at the beginning, which isn't quite a voiceover, but is a frame. There's one other spot early on in the movie where Alma does a little bit of narration. But in general, it's it's the viewer that's being asked to put all of these relationships together from whatever little cues we have.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's not a lot explained between the moment when he begins measuring her and the way in which she's then seamlessly, seamlessly integrated into his life. After he's measured her and they've had this first date, she kind of just starts living with him in London. She yeah, well, the next
1: time you see her after that is when she's wearing the dress that he just measured her for, right? He, show, he, he tries mm-hmm. that kind of mauve silk material against it, decides it will be that color, and the next scene you see her in the finished dress kind of grandly entering into a London restaurant Yeah, he makes him. her
0: a beautiful dress, and she goes, and she goes to the brasserie that he's always eating at, and suddenly she's in his life, and she's in London, and she's in high society. She's been plucked from this country town, and now she's his muse, And lives next door to him in the house. I mean, they don't share a bedroom, but they have kind of conjoining bedrooms in the house, though it's very clear that his door is not to be approached. Right. And he's the one who
1: decides when she's allowed into his room and when when she's not.
0: Yeah. And, you know, they don't really get together until, you know, a- about a third of the way through the movie when you see them out to dinner and she's wearing this beautiful black lace dress that almost has a kind of fetish quality to it. It's got red underneath all this black lace and they're at a very boring dinner And these two young women come up and approach Reynolds as kind of fangirls and say, oh, it's my dream to wear a dress from the house of Woodcock. And and the the girl's friend says, yes, she said she wanted to be buried in your dress. And he gives, I think there's a rush that he gets from this sense of importance. These two young women just coming over and gawking over him that he immediately sort of has this look towards Alma that's like, tonight's the night we're going to. We're going to become one.
1: Ah, I never thought of that as being their night of of consummation
0: Mm, because he pulls her into his room. And I I, maybe they've done that before. But in my mind, that's like a big romantic scene for them. He's turned on by the idea he's important as many artists are. Right. I mean, when we describe
1: this movie right now, it sounds like Reynolds Reynolds Woodcock is this awful character Mm. who's, who's some sort of exploitive asshole that we're supposed to hate from the beginning. And I want to make it clear that that is absolutely not the case. No,
0: I mean, it's almost impossible to dislike daniel day lewis in this role like there's never been a more charming person and you can feel why someone would be drawn to him i mean he's so he's got this leonine profile and he's so tender when he talks to her and he has this sense you know when you first realize that he's a deeply sympathetic character and somebody that you're sort of fascinated by is back in that first date they sit next to a fire and he starts talking about sewing messages into his clothing oh no this is at dinner and how he he keeps a lock of his mother's hair in his overcoat that he's sewn in and then later on in the date he starts telling the story of how he made his mother's wedding dress when he was um, a teenager and she taught him his trade and he's sort of deeply misses his mother and loved her and there's a lot of sorrow in him and a lot of pathos and so you can see the tortured part of his genius and you can see how someone might fall for that
1: yeah, he's. it's not at all framed uh, that this is a—I don't know how to put this, but this is not a sort of crassly feminist movie. It's not framed as, you know, this woman is being exploited by a man and his brother, and she must find her way to freedom, even though there certainly is um, a narrative of, of rebellion and, and uprising between Absolutely. the two Absolutely.
0: But in a lot of ways, it's about, like, the will that they both enter the relationship into. Like, the thing that I love about this movie is that Vicky—Alma— from the very beginning, seem, has agency. Um, you know, she's provocative and and playful with him um, in a way that is exciting and surprising. You know, there's an early scene in which they're doing a fitting, and she's in a fabric that she hates. They're making this spring collection, and there's this dark sort of damask with flowers. Kind of bunchy. Yeah. yeah, that they're making a dress out of that's a cocktail dress, and she just goes, I don't like the fabric. And Cyril goes, oh, all the women who buy House Woodcock love this fabric and it doesn't matter what you think. And 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 she says to Reynolds, maybe I want maybe, I, I, you know, maybe I like my own own taste. And he says, maybe you're looking for trouble. And maybe she says, maybe I want to get in trouble. Mm. You know, she's like, it's almost like she's pushing him so that she can be pulled. I mean, there's a lot of playfulness between them.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty and luck. I'm going
0: to make him an offer he can't refuse with family
1: Okay, so now I think we need to get to some actual spoilage because, because we're talking about yes, this. Yes, we're dancing around it. Them. Yeah, we need to get to the stuff that you can't say in a review that happens in this movie and the kind of, um the, the way that their their relationship becomes a, I don't know what you'd call it, but a sort of sadomasochistic game.
0: Yes, I think when we walked out of the movie, Dana, I said, this is like a movie about S&M where the S is scavenging and the M is mushrooms, <laughs> which I think now we have to explain. um So... We get a sense that there's a kind of SNM, you know, proto ish vibe to this movie um, from the very beginning because they they like beating up on each other um, and getting into fights is what gets them riled up and it, it sort of helps him him you know release energy and it helps her gain power back and there's definitely like a lot of exciting power dynamics but um, we learn that. Very, very quickly that he has these breakdowns after he finishes a spring collection or a fall collection. He goes to his country house and he kind of sleeps for four days and he gets really weary and becomes like a baby reverts back to a childlike state. Yeah, she says he's like a spoiled little baby and he needs someone to take care of him. And this is where she feels like she really shines as a as a as a girlfriend is in these moments when he's at his lowest right and so we see that happening once
1: um not instigated by her right just him having it yeah, one just of has his natural breakdown, breakdowns fainting and spells she nurses him out of it i think that's maybe when you hear the voiceover of her talking to the guy by the fireside mm-hmm. who we will find out later is the doctor that's brought in to examine him when he's sick and becomes like a weird triple in their snm relationship yeah or or yeah, or quadruple. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and we her saying in that voiceover that this is when he's at his most open and tender and that she needs him to be that way. So now let's get into to your S&M of scavenging and mushrooms. Yes.
0: So there's an entire subplot running through this movie that has very little to do with fashion or fittings or clothes. It has to do with foraging for wild mushrooms and picking the poisonous ones and then putting them in a tea or a soup. So we find out about halfway through the movie after they've had a terrible row um, that Alma has decided to get revenge on Reynolds and she is out in the country house foraging uh, and they ha- they have this little book of which mushrooms to eat and which not to eat. She picks this one with gills. The sort of uh, staunch older housekeeper of the country house says like the ones with gills are poisonous. She picks the one with gills. She takes it uh, back to the kitchen, she shaves it, um, she grinds it in a mortar and pestle, and she puts it in a little container to take back to the city with her. Right. So of course you think at this point, oh, this is a fairy tale.
1: She's poisoning him, right? She's, gonna, she's trying to kill him because she's angry about their row. But as it becomes clear from the, the next few scenes... What she's, in fact, trying to do is just make him sick again to get him back to that baby-like state so she can take care of him.
0: Yeah. he. She says he needs to settle down a bit. Um, he's worked himself into somewhat of a professional frenzy over the last few weeks because he's making this wedding dress for this princess of Belgium for whom he's made every dress since she was born. And he's promised her it's going to be so fabulous that it's going to feel to her like the only wedding dress that was ever made, <laughs> which is an <laughs> insane promise to make to a client. And he's just become a total ass in the process because he's completely consumed by the idea of making this ultimate wedding dress. She realizes that she needs to help him calm down or settle or revert to this kind of state where he needs somebody else.
1: But she and never yeah, says that, right? She never, I mean, I mean, yeah, she never says that. We never we put that. it together.
0: We put it together
1: from watching him drink the tea, get extremely sick. There's a fantastic, fantastic scene where he goes to look at the wedding dress, which is on a dress form while you, you're you know, but he doesn't know that he's been poisoned and uh and he collapses tearing the dress and screwing it up so that they have to stay up all night fixing the dress for the princess. And uh and that to me is sort of the turning point of the movie where it becomes you know, a psychological thriller as well as a love story. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And so you think, oh, is she a murderess? Did she want to poison him to the point where he was just like she wanted to kill him? But no, she has this very specific formula, which we find out even at the end to give you a real spoiler that she knows how specific it is that she won't kill him. Because when she does this for the last time, which I'm sure we can talk about very soon, she says, you're not going to die. You're going to feel like you want to die, but you're not going to die. Like she's measured it out. She knows that this is a about enough to make him sick for three days and completely laid up. But he won't die. It's just a little bit of torture.
1: But there is a moment when we see, to go back to the first time he's sick, after he collapses with the dress and they make him go to bed against his will, right? There's this scene that both times I saw it gave me absolute chills and made me cry. Where he sees his mother standing in the room, I thought he was dying the first time I saw the movie because, right? I mean, the, the character ghost of your lying in bed, see the yeah. ghost of your mother. Of course, you're dying. And so I remember crying in that scene the first time, just thinking like that character's going to die, and it's going to be the last we ever see of Daniel Day Lewis on a screen. There was sort of this meta sadness about the disappearance of Reynolds Woodcock and Daniel Day Lewis, and the way that scene with the mother is done is incredible. You've seen her photograph once before. It's mm-hmm. in the wedding dress that he made her when he was a child. That there's this whole conversation about cursing having to do with i mean not swearing cursing but whether being cursed being yes. cursed if you work on a wedding dress that is not your own which is i guess a super was a superstition and was why his mother we know who refused to work on the dress the nanny. with him the nanny refused to work on the dress and it ended up being Cyril his sister who worked on the dress who in fact never did marry, right? So in a way, the curse came true for her.
0: And here's Reynolds also kind of having worked on the wedding dress and perhaps cursed himself because he has this cycle of women and he's quite solitary. And, you know, later he says a house that doesn't change is a dead house. He's living in a dead house sort of inside. And I think, you know, he sees his mother in this beautiful scene. She comes back as a ghost, but it's not like a freaky haunty ghost that's why i love it there's just the the actress is standing
1: there in the in the wedding dress breathing you know normal not spectral in any way she doesn't speak
0: she just stands there she's sort of in this eggy candlelight glow and he just says i miss you and i think about you all the time to this vision of his mother and you realize that it takes him being completely undone by these mushrooms to get to that tenderness and vulnerability.
1: Yeah. And what he says to the mother is so simple. Just I miss you and I think about you every day. It's it's great and it's heartbreaking. Um okay so we're gonna we could linger over every single second, but I'm realizing we've barely talked about the music, the clothes, the cinematography. There's so much more to let's just go
0: over whatever's great about it really quick.
1: Okay, before we get to yeah, let's get to the very ending. We'll spoil the very ending last, but can we can you briefly talk about
0: yeah the sonic visual impressions of seeing this movie? So Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead wrote the score. And it is a very traditional classical score. I mean, it feels very sweeping and cinematic, almost like a Bernard Herman score. Well, he the...
1: uses a lot of classical music, too. And what I really want when this movie comes out in Criterion or whatever, I would love to have an entire audio track of Johnny Greenwood talking about the music and, and sort of pointing out the joins, like where is it that Symphonie Fantastique, which is in the music credits at the end, gets woven into, you know, the sort of pseudo-classical music that he wrote. It's just, it's all this kind of sweeping soundscape that blends together beautifully. And you start to realize at the end, oh, there's a love theme. There's this like Liebestod love and death theme mm-hmm. that's associated with them. And I don't know if it's Greenwoods or something he imported from somewhere, but you start to realize, wait, it's associated with the mushrooms and it's associated with these kind of darkest, most truthful moments of their relationship. You'll hear this particular piano theme. Anyway, and it's it's very... Um, Like there's a lot of music, which I usually don't love in a movie to sort of be told how to feel every moment by the score.
0: Right. It's a quiet movie uh, verbally, but it's a pretty lush movie musically.
1: Yeah. And And, and in this movie, it didn't bother me. I didn't have the feeling like clear that sound out so I can have my own feelings because as I wrote it in my review, it's almost like the music was the lining to the movie. You know, it sort of needed to be there.
0: Right. The phantom thread that flows through the whole thing. Um, But I also think coming back to the Hitchcock references and the fact that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson clearly was very inspired um, by Hitchcock's work for this film. I mean, it felt to me most like the way the score was used in Vertigo, these like big sweeping Moments of like strings that swell during a psychological thriller that kind of make it tender and also sort of don't help you not really know exactly where it's going because your ears are hearing one thing and your eyes are seeing another. Yeah, including having a love and death theme, right?
1: Yeah. That, like the Bernard, the great Bernard Herman one in Vertigo. Uh, and what about, let's talk about just briefly how the movie looks, because it looks absolutely incredible. Paul Thomas Anderson did the cinematography himself. It's the first time he's done that. It makes it sort of hard to imagine what the set was like, that he was his own cinematographer for a movie that has this level of, you know, sort of specificity about the lighting and the color.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful looking movie. Um And it it almost feels like it's a painting, you know, that a lot of the the individual shots are composed almost like classical painting portraiture. There's that shot of her um, that the movie actually ends on um, where she's standing in silhouette.
1: Oh, yeah. It's in the trailer,
0: too. Yeah. Yeah. against some sort of like giant window and she's being measured and there's and she's from the side and just the way that the dress, the structure of the dress flows out. It makes it look like a sergeant painting. And it's it's, so at beautiful. that moment, she's
1: wearing, which you often see her wearing, one of those kind of muslin, I don't know what it would be called, like a muslin model dress. She's wearing for a, a corset and a muslin skirt. Right, yeah. right. So it's not even the dress yet. It is kind of the phantom thread, right? Mm-hmm. It's the ghost of what the it's dress It's the shell will be. of the
0: dress. It's the underpinnings of the, of the garment. And the movie has so much color in it, um, but the colors are. All of a palette, almost as if it was a fashion season and they had sort of put up a, a, a look board on yeah, the wall. What, and what colors would you say are in there? I mean, it's a lot of jewel tones. There's this purple. There's these sort of b- beautiful, sort of brilliant persimmon color, orange reds there's um royal navy there's mustard yellow there's emerald green almost all of uh, reynolds clients that aren't alma are put in green i noticed um particularly barbara rose and the woman at the end oh barbara rose she's this a uh, socialite that reynolds has to dress who's a, a alcoholic and a drug addict and they later decide that she is not Uh, worthy of a dress of the House of Woodcock and strip uh, strip a dress off of her at her own wedding. But I think there's a sense of this emerald green that runs through it. And it's a lot of saturated color against a very gray and white and minimal background. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of describing it. So it does have a feeling of jewels against a setting, right? And texture, of course, in a movie about textiles is going to be really important too. So there's um, there's lots of, you know, foldy satin and kind of, you know, light reflecting off of different textures of and
0: as a movie that is you know for all intents and purposes about fashion it is such a beautiful valentine to fashion as a fashion history and clothes i mean the work of mid-century design is all over this movie and it's so clear how much research they did um when i talked to the fashion designer he told me that they had gone to the um, victoria and albert museum in london and Gotten to touch all of these garments from that time and look at how they were constructed, and something about these garments made by Dior or Charles James or Balenciaga is that they're so simple, but they're just so perfectly tailored, and they're the you know you can't detect a seam in the lace. And there's something about that that feels like it's very emblematic of what this movie is made like. Right, yeah. I mean, it's really impossible to talk about this movie
1: without using textile metaphors. You know, yeah. It's like you feel like yeah, a hack you writer, like a but hacker, you, can't, like... you can't help it. It's like stitching and folding and all of that stuff is kind of in, mm-hmm. like right there in the the object. All right. Um, we're rhapsodizing. Yeah. This is great, but we have to get to the ending mm-hmm. and spoil what what's the final chapter of the mushroom story. So, she has poisoned him with mushrooms once already. And oh, we forgot that he proposes marriage after that first poisoning, right? So that worked in the sense it worked. That it, 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 it totally it really worked. worked in his defenses, and he realized he
0: needed her, and so she becomes his wife, um, which he immediately regrets.
1: Yeah, basically the first <laughs> the first thing you see after their wedding is her annoyingly buttering her toast too loud at breakfast again. again.
0: Breakfast <laughs> at the very end of the movie, she. Decides she needs to poison him again. He has insulted her in front of his sister and talked about possibly removing her from the household. And she realizes, oh, Reynolds needs to be settled again. And she goes out, picks some poisonous mushrooms. She's in the kitchen and he sees her looking up whether or not they're poisonous in the book. And see,
1: you got that the first time we saw it, and I didn't. The last scene is very, very mysterious. All right, here. so here goes with the spoilage. So how did you know when he knew? Because we see her, she's chopping a lot more mushrooms than she did for the tea. So I, the first time I'm watching it, i am thinking, oh, this time she's going for it. She's really furious, and she's actually going to murder him. I mean, I, th- I thought I was in a less sophisticated movie than I was in, basically, because I thought it was going to end with this act of revenge. She's chopping up the mushrooms. She's consulting the book. He's sitting there sketching in his notebook, waiting for dinner, and uh, were you sure by the time she
0: brought the omelet over that he knew it was a poisoned omelet? I think he looks up from his book and he looks at her looking at the book and there's this moment. It's so subtle. It flashes across his face where he thinks, oh, this is why I've been perpetually sick. It's like a Munchausen syndrome, you know, thing. Right. M- mushrooms by proxy syndrome. Right. So
1: he's putting together a lot. I mean, I guess it's just yeah, it's a testament to to how smart his character is and how subtle an actor DDL is that... I couldn't quite tell at that moment. I mean, you know that he knows that there's some sort of face-off going on. Right. Even the way she pours his water is, is challenging and, and yeah, noisy, deliberately the, noisy. Yeah, she pours
0: it from the top of the ceiling. And I think there's a, there's a, you know, he's had these mystery illnesses that, again, the doctor that we see she has been talking to by the fire this whole time keeps coming and trying to diagnose, and no one has been able to find out why he keeps getting ill. And I think there's this moment of recognition that flashes across his face, which is like, oh, of course, we're in a game. And the game is that she's poisoning me and she makes him this omelet on this skillet in the country house. And it's the most sensuous shot of making an omelet I think I've ever seen. It's almost pornographic the way they shoot the eggs and the bubbling of the butter. Yeah, It's one of the few
1: extreme close ups in the movie. Yeah.
0: And we learn early in the in the movie that Reynolds hates too much butter. And here she is. She just puts on maybe, you know, half a stick of butter and then puts another one on. I mean, she's just lathering this thing in butter, which is already tortured to him. And when he, she serves him this omelet, he, they have this conversation, and you realize pretty early that he knows that there's poison mushrooms in this omelet. Well, you know from the way he chews, right? I mean, this is part of the wit of this movie. It's just
1: really funny at times. And, and one of the things I love is his challenging chewing of the omelet while staring into her eyes, and that's when you know that he knows, as he chews it and swallows it, like, there, you see? And they're in this
0: face-off, he's chewing, she's staring at him, watching him chew. It's so erotic, actually. Has he already swallowed by the time she says, you won't die, you'll only wish you had died? There's a moment that she just lays it out. Right? She lays it out. She says, I want you flat on your back. But has he tender swallowed open. at that point? I think he swallows. And then she said, I don't know. Um, we'll have to go back and find out. But she looks at him and says, I want you flat on your back, tender, open, with no one to help you but me. or Something like that. And he, he's into it. And he's. They have this moment, and it's so great because they lock eyes and he says, kiss me, my girl, before I'm sick. And you realize, like, he's going to play the game with her. He's Mm -hmm. ready. He's ready to do this S&M relationship because it's working for them.
1: Right. And that pretty much, I mean, that's essentially the end of the movie. There's a little bit of a coda after that Mm -hmm. in which... She continues to talk to the guy at the fireside. You actually see that Daniel Day-Lewis
0: is lying on her lap as she talks to him at the fireside. And she spools out their future together. And but she is sees. that a
1: fantasy sequence?
0: So I think there's a way in which it's her fantasy, um, but it maybe doesn't really happen, you know, again, to spoil. We're in the spoiler show. So, you know, they have a baby together. There's a, a world in which she says she's going to take care of his dresses. And I didn't notice this when I was watching, but Mark told me that the final scene where she's pinning someone, she actually has her own clients at that point so she's sort of taking over the house of woodcock in the end she wants to be a designer she finally gets to do it and um she has this idea of their future as it will spool out and uh, everything will end up as it should and leslie manville will be a happy aunt taking care of the the baby begrudgingly (laughs) and it may just be her fantasy but what you kind of get when he's lying in her lap in saying, you know, I'm getting hungry, is that he wants it too. They, they, that he realizes that this is the kind of relationship that works for him. It allows him to make his art, it allows her to get the power back. And even though it's extremely twisted in its way, that it has a dynamic that's very loving inside it. Right. And, and so, also funny and crazy. Right. I mean that's that's
1: I think maybe what sends you out, sent you and I out of this movie on such a high is that it's this it's this great kind of celebration of kink, you know, that is but that is not at all demeaning to either either character in the relationship.
0: Well and what's great about this movie in general is that it's such a twist that you don't see coming. I mean he actually pulls off the psychological thriller aspects of it because you just think in a lot of ways it's a movie about fashion or you know, tortured genius or male ego. And it is about all those things. But it's also about tender love by poisoning. Right. And sort of in an allegorical sense, coming coming to
1: an understanding, coming to a way of living together, a design for living as a couple, no matter how inscrutable or sick it might seem to the outside world, but coming to one that works for you.
0: And to speak to your final point about whether or not this is a actually feminist movie, I mean, I think a lot of people will, will make a meal out of whether or not Alma has actual agency and whether Reynolds is abusive. And I think those things are worth pondering. But I do think that there is, like you said, a vital act of rebellion that Alma brings to this relationship and holds her own. And there is something kind of wonderfully enchanting about thinking about her you know grinding up poison mushrooms and knowing she's going to have the power for a few days
1: mm-hmm. yeah imagining the future of that relationship i mean i don't need a sequel but <laughs> it's 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 kind of nice to dream yes all right you're making me want to go out and see it again now for a third time
0: honestly it's the kind of film that i feel like will hold up over time to multiple viewings because even the second time i saw it i noticed so many more little details and i think that that to bring in full circle that's kind of the phantom thread idea you know he sews all these little messages at, when Reynolds does into his garments but I think that that this movie has a lot of little things sewn into it seams as well it's just really delicate and interesting and there's always something to look at yeah and the second time you see it you really see how tightly knitted
1: you know how tightly sewn together it is and that every scene serves some purpose and that almost everything comes back you know there's a lot of kind of circularity and repetition. yeah three two one we say it better. That there's just a lot of circularity and and, and repetition, repetition in the best way. All right, Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Please come back and spoil another great movie with me soon. I would love to. Before we go, I want to tell you about another podcast, Slate's Audio Book Club, where every month you can hear the host Katie Waldman, our great literary critic and general language scholar, be joined by a rotating cast of critics to discuss new and important books. Whether you've read the books or not, you can tune in to hear the critics' lively and sometimes heated debates about the works and figure out if you need to pick up a copy yourself. This month, they will be discussing the new translation of The Odyssey by Emily Wilson, which I can personally recommend because I'm in the midst of reading it myself, and I will tune into this book club to listen for sure. Thank you for listening to the Slate Spoiler Special. You can subscribe to us in the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed, and if you like our show, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcast Store. It's a great way to drive new people to the show. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows, we should spoil because there are TV spoilers as well. Or if you have any other feedback you would like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producers this week are Daniel Schrader and June Thomas. For Rachel Syme, I'm Dana Stevens. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.